You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. John chapter 5, our focus today will be on verses 18 through 30, we'll be reading verses 16 through 47. John 5, beginning with verse 16, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, but Jesus answered them. My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing, For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he's borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. 
You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of Father within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not, mar- do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, have mercy and grant grace as I take up this awesome text. Keep me from error. May I be faithful to your word. May your spirit teach us all now. Father, there are depths here beyond any of us. But there are truths which it's absolutely essential that we get right. Keep us from error. That we might worship you rightly and truly. That we might honor your son as he's worthy of being honored. I pray now as your word is preached, the Son is truly set before souls here, that they will not have a heart like these Jews do in this instance, failing to receive the one you've given and sent that they would properly esteem Christ, that they would marvel at Him, that they would believe on You as the One who sent Your Son, and they would have eternal life. Our eyes look to You as the hands of a slave to his master. We plead for bread, confident You will not give us a stone. Feed us now, Father, in the name of Jesus, amen. Peering over this text is like looking from a precipice down into a cavernous hole filled with crystal clear and yet mysteriously dark water. We're about to plunge in and there is both a thrill to it and there is trembling. The scenery's breathtakingly stunning. The water we know is refreshing because these are the very depths from which the water of salvation flows. 
And we're thrilled because we're not just invited to drink of these waters and have eternal life. We're invited to plunge in and know something. We cannot fathom their depths, but we do get to experience and know something of the triune life of our Lord. But the depths, as they are unfathomable, mysterious, and deep, are cause for trembling. There is joy, but there is a holy reverence. There's no horseplay as we begin to jump in. The Gospel of John is the most richly Trinitarian text in the Scriptures. And this is one of the most richly Trinitarian texts in John. J.C. Ryle wrote, These verses begin one of the most deep and solemn passages in the four Gospels. They show us the Lord Jesus asserting His own divine nature, His unity with God the Father, the high dignity of His office. Nowhere does our Lord dwell so fully on these subjects as in the chapter before us. And nowhere, we must confess, do we find out so thoroughly the weakness of man's understanding. There is much we must all feel that is beyond our comprehension in our Lord's account of Himself. Such knowledge, in short, is too wonderful for us. It is high, we cannot attain to it. How often men say they want clear explanations of the doctrines as, of such doctrines as the Trinity. Yet here we have our Lord handling the subject of His own person, and behold, we cannot follow Him. We seem only to touch His meaning with the tip of our fingers. Isn't it astounding that this gospel is written for the purpose of setting before us these signs so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, This book is written for unbelievers, and it is one of the most profoundly deep texts. It dives so deep into the Trinity. Later on, Ryle continues, One thing only is certain. Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such formal, systematic, orderly, a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of His own unity with the Father, His divine commission and authority, and the proofs of His Messiahship as we find in this discourse. To me, it seems one of the deepest things in the Bible. The verses that lie before us, verse 18 forward to verse 47, these verses are all a commentary on Jesus' words in verse 18. My Father's working until now, and I am working. It's Jesus' commentary on His own words. And so here we see not only the magnitude of Jesus' claim, but the magnitude of our response to that claim. Receive it or reject it. This is a glory you must deal with. Every one of us have to deal with what Jesus is putting before us. It's being put before you by the Spirit in the preaching of the Word right now. You encounter Christ in this way. You have to deal with Him. 
And the magnitude is one of life and death. The Jews got it wrong. The history of the ancient church creeds and heresies speaks to those who get this wrong. The Athanasian Creed did not go too far when it said, Whosoever will be saved, before all things it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. By which means the universal faith. This is what every one of the saints believe. You want salvation, you must believe this. It goes on. Which faith except everyone to keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this. This is just the first line. That we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. That's what's set before you here. Is that the one God is triune. Chiefly set before us Father and Son here today. And Trinity and unity. The Father and the Son are one. Error in these matters makes one an idolater. A heretic. As we prepare to plunge in then we need humility and boldness. A humble boldness, a bold humility to actually jump. We need faith. Faith in this regard specifically. 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 13 teaches us how to leap into these waters. Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So may the spirit of God now bless the word of God to rightly give us an understanding and knowledge and communion with the son of God. Jesus' supposed Sabbath breaking led to persecution, verse 16. This persecution likely being interrogating questions, accusations, slanderous declarations. And Jesus then answers them, verse 17, Jesus answered them saying, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And that answer does not diffuse the situation, it makes it more volatile. Jesus claims That his healing, the invalid man at the pool, doesn't count as work because it was a divine work. And as a result, they're seeking all the more to kill him, not simply for Sabbath breaking, but for blasphemy. He has claimed God as his father in such a way that he's made himself equal with God. Now, both Sabbath breaking and blasphemy, according to the law, are punishable by Death. They are capital offenses. Exodus 31.14, Leviticus 24.16. The problem with the accusation of Sabbath breaking is that it falls on multiple accounts. The only laws Jesus has broken in healing this 
invalid man are the ones they've made up. But concerning the charge of you've made yourself equal with God, they get it absolutely right. That's exactly what Jesus has done. They've drawn the correct conclusion from Jesus' words. So, these leaders who fail to rightly understand the law regarding the Sabbath correctly understand Jesus' words concerning Himself. That He's made Himself equal with God. The problem is not in their head. The problem is in their heart. Intellectually, they understand what Jesus is saying. But spiritually, they fail to receive it. John 1, 9-11. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was, coming, was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. They understand what He's saying They don't accept it. They don't receive Him. Here's the magnitude of the situation then. Someone has blasphemed. Either Jesus or these leaders. One of them is blasphemed in this moment. And someone must die according to the law. Sinner... This is the precise situation you are in right now. Jesus is put before you, making himself equal with God. And either he's blaspheming, you can think that about him, or you blaspheme. And you can do so by your silence. You might like to think you're not so violent. But if you don't worship Jesus as God, if you're not bowing before Him as Lord with the totality of your being, you are wishing He were not. He's making a claim, and if you're not bowing, you said, I would rather Jesus not be. He's making a claim as absolute Lord, and unless you recognize that, you are acting as Lord. You have no other options. You cannot politely ignore Jesus. Silence is blasphemy. It's a failure to give Him that which He alone is due. And you're not silent. We were made to be worshipers. Your life shouts worship. Worship of self. Worship of stuff. Worship of idols. Your life worships. And if it's not Jesus, it's blasphemy. Your whole life is blasphemy. For all their failures here, you have to give the Jews credit that they are dealing with Jesus according to his own claims at least. They're not reimagining Jesus however they wish and then saying, oh, I accept and receive Jesus. That act of receiving Jesus is a rejection of Jesus. 
Well did C.S. Lewis dismiss any alternatives than the one that's put before you. He's Lord. He's the Son of God. He is God. He's equal with the Father. Lewis dismisses any alternatives when he wrote, Christ says to us, Christ says that He is humble and meek. And we believe Him. Not noticing that if He were merely a man, humility and meekness are the very last characteristics we could attribute to some of His sayings. I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Him. I'm ready to accept receive. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That's the magnitude of what's set before you here. Verse 19 and following, Jesus gives an answer to his answer. For some bizarre reason, the ESV leaves a word completely untranslated. It's the same word you have in verse 17, but Jesus answered. Same word is used in verse 19. It's completely gone. Every word you have, so Jesus said to them, that's all correct, but it leaves out the word answered being in there as well. So the New King James reads, then Jesus answered and said to them, This is not like an answer that one gets at a press conference. Jesus does not explain away. Jesus does not make any retractions. He doesn't say, oh no, you've misunderstood. He doesn't soften the meaning of his words. He doesn't redefine. He doesn't apologize. He doubles down. He doubles down with a solemn pledge. Truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to you. And the fundamental premise of what Jesus has said, my father's working until now and I am working, Jesus says there are two sides of this. Number one, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Number two, Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Notice how each phrase, there is some careful nuance here. These, these two phrases are, are, harmoni- are harmonious, they're complementary, they feel one another out. They're not saying exactly the same thing. The Son can do only what He sees the Father doing. So if the Son is acting... What he's doing is what he sees the Father doing. That's number one. Number two says, whatever the Father's doing, the Son does likewise. So, if the Father is doing something, 
the Son is doing that very thing. Whatever the Father does. You see what it's saying? It's telling us their acts are inseparable. If the Father is acting, the Son is acting. If the Son is acting, the Father is acting. You don't get the Son ever doing any kind of action that the Father isn't doing. He doesn't draw His acts from any other source. And it's not as if the Father might do a little side gig such that the Son only does some of what the Father does. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Their acts are inseparable. And yet, as we look at this, what Jesus says here, we need to be extremely careful. These are some depths, so buckle up. I pray God help you see the magnitude of why this is so important and why there is so much theological tradition that we are heirs to. So much precise theological language because these things are so important. So this is not just rich theological language for the sake of intellectualism. No, this is because heresy has attacked the preciousness of these truths time and time again. And the church is reflected deeply and profoundly and made great efforts at wanting to capture the truth of what Christ is saying here. So, theologians have long differentiated between what they call the imminent trinity and the economic trinity. Imminent, the trinity in and of himself. Economic works, the trinity and his works towards creation. Or another way they say this, uh, they'll speak of the trinity ad intra towards Himself and the Trinity add extra towards that without Himself, towards creation. One Trinity, but there is some distinction here that is crucial to rightly understanding the one Trinity. Whenever we look at the Trinity add extra or the economic Trinity, we're considering God on mission. His mission to redeem fallen man. And as we do so, we consider the Son being sent. Meaning we're looking at God incarnate. The Son having taken on flesh. And here's where the critical distinction comes. And this is an error even many in Reformed camps recently have been Prone to. Dear godly brothers that are a profound blessing have made mistakes here. So that's why we need to be cautious. It's easy to do. The danger is to read of God the Son incarnate. And how He relates to the Father. And read that in time as He sent on mission. And to read that backwards into how they've related eternally. So for example... Galatians 4.4 tells us that in His humiliation, Jesus came as a man under the law. He submitted His human will to the law, to His Father. And so the danger comes if you think you read that back into eternity and the Son is eternally subordinate. To the Father. 
That's the danger. To read back how he relates to the Father in time to how he is related to the Father eternally. To read back how he relates to the Father as the God-man into how he relates to the Father as the only begotten Son. And the confusion is very easy to do for this reason. Temporal missions, so Jesus being sent to redeem man, temporal missions reveal eternal relations. Jesus is speaking right here about his temporal mission. He's sent to redeem, and it's in that aspect that he does only according to what his father does. There's a submission that's here. So this temporal mission, though, is meant by Jesus to reveal eternal relations. That he is God. So temporal missions do reveal eternal relations, but they're not identical. Jesus, as He is the eternally begotten Son, it's fitting then that He, as the one who is the Son, would be the one who becomes man and submits Himself to the Father. It's fitting, but it's not identical. So you can see how there's this thing that Jesus has done in His becoming man and coming under the law that's all befitting His eternal sonship, but it's not identical. Don't make them identical, but do realize that this, as you see the Son, He reveals to you His eternal relation to the Father. Here, Jesus speaks in regard to His temporal mission. The Son can do nothing of His own accord. Verse 30 I can do nothing on my own. I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. He speaks of His temporal mission, but He does so, testifying to His eternal relation. Calvin is helpful here. The discourse does not relate to the simple divinity of Christ, as if we're just considering that, that alone. It does not relate to the simple divinity of Christ, And those statements, which we shall immediately see, do not simply and of themselves relate to the eternal Word of God, but apply only to the Son of God so far as He is manifested in the flesh. Let us therefore keep Christ before our eyes as He was sent into the world by the Father to be a Redeemer. So, if it's not been enough, let me set before you some really fancy theological language to be clear about how we're thinking about Christ and His submitting His human will to the will of His heavenly Father. Whenever we read this language of Jesus saying things like, I can do nothing of my own. I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. When we read those kind of things, We need to realize Jesus is not talking about eternal, ontological subordination. Ontological has the idea of what that means as being. It's not as though the being of the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father. So whenever you hear language like this by Jesus, it's not referring to eternal, ontological subordination. It is referring to Temporal, economic humiliation. 
temporal. It's in time. Economic, it's about his work of redeeming man. And it's about his humiliation. And yet, that distinct temporal mission reveals, manifest, the eternal relation. So Jesus is speaking about his temporal mission for the purpose of revealing something of his eternal relation to the Father, demonstrating that he is God. See, the point of this text, here's where had to unpack all of that to tell you that the point of this text is not the subordination of his person. The point of this text is the inseparability of his work. That's what Jesus is focusing on. The point of this is not to tell you, hey, the Son is less than God. No, they have understood the point is you're making yourself equal with God. And Jesus is saying, yes, our works are inseparable. That's the point. If Jesus is working, he's doing what he sees the Father working. And if the Father is working, the Son is doing likewise. He's making the same point that is alluded to in 118. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. Wait a second. No one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. That would be the Son. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Read John. Compare it to the Synoptic Gospels. And God the Father never comes on the scene as a major actor and character in John's Gospel. Why is that? Jesus is center stage and He is making the Father known. This is why Jesus can say to Philip, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 14, 9. If you want to know what the Father is doing in real time... Look at Jesus. Their acts are inseparable. This is not the young boy in his father's wood shop clumsily mimicking his father's fine-tuned skills advancing towards taking on that trade someday. This is a father-son team working a single act though distinctly, where their precise and perfect work will meet inseparably without a noticeable seam as they're building a cross by which to redeem fallen man. If you erase the work of one member of the Trinity, you erase all their work. You erase the work of one member of the Trinity, the other's work doesn't make any sense anymore. You don't know what they're doing. It's inseparable. Matthew Barrett speaks of this glory this way. I cannot emphasize this enough. One and the same action, one and the same divine nature. The reason why their acts are inseparable is because they are one. They're inseparable. And the reason why they're distinct is because they are a trinity in unity and a unity in trinity. He goes on. One in the same action, one in the same divine nature. The three act as one because they are one. They act in virtue of the one nature they hold in common. In theology, this unity and act is called inseparable operations. 
The three persons are without separation or division in their external operations toward the world, whether they be creation, providence, or redemption. Every operation is from the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. So, how is it that the incarnate Son, in His humiliation, can do whatever the Father does? One, verse 20, four, because the Father loves the Son, and two, shows Him all that He Himself is doing. The Father loves the Son and gives all things into His hand, John 3, 34 and 35. He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for He, the Father, gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And then the Father shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. In His divinity, the Son perfectly behold the Father, beheld the Father. In His divinity, He has always, even now, as we're reading, He beholds the Father in perfection. No one has seen God save God who is at the Father's right hand. He beholds the Father without limit. In His humanity, the Father reveals whatever He's doing to the Son, so that the Son does likewise. The Son is not an unauthorized copier. He's not like Adam in the garden, imitating God when He's not God. He is the authorized copier. When He does what the Father does, it's because He is God. He's able to do likewise because He is God. This mission, this temporal mission, you see, reveals His eternal relation as the Son, who has always perfectly beheld the Father as the Father's beloved. His temporal mission reveals His eternal relation. He is the one who was in the beginning with God and was God. And understanding this then, that the Father reveals to the Son whatever He's he's doing, what can we expect? And Jesus says, greater things. And greater works than these will He show Him Why? That you may marvel. The Father's love for the Son reveals what He's doing to the Son, so that the Son might do what the Father is doing, so that we might marvel. If you're not marveling, you're missing the point. And as an explanation of the kind of works that are before Jesus that He's going to do, that you might marvel, Jesus gives us two. He will give life and He will judge. For as the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing for the Father, and greater works than these will He show Him that you may marvel for... As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So, as the Father, first He gives life, then judgment. We'll take each of these in turn, but they're inseparable. The reason He's able to give life is part of His being given all judgment. And His giving life means you don't come into judgment as judgment, as condemnation. So as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. God alone raises the dead. 
After Eli had given assurance to Hannah that her prayers had been heard, she responds in song saying, Yahweh kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. God alone does this. And that He alone does it is really clear whenever King Jehoram had received word from the king of Syria, I'm sending you Naaman, that he, you heal him. We're not exactly sure as King Jehoram, that's the large consensus, but the king responds, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends me word to cure a man of his leprosy? Am I God to kill and to make alive? It's true. We see Elijah, we see Elisha, Peter, Paul. We see all of them raise the dead, but they all do so as servants. That's not what you're told here. You're told that Jesus raises them as a son. He raises them as His Father raises the dead. He does likewise, just like His Father. And then... The son who gives life is given all judgment, verse 22. Now, Abraham said that God is the judge of all the earth. God, our triune God is the judge of all the earth. The Father judges. Jesus is only doing what he sees the Father doing. In verse 30, he judges as he hears, seeking not his own will, but the will of him who sent him. So, God judges, Jesus says, the Father judges no one. How do we put those together? Well, Jesus is telling you. The way that the Father judges is by committing all judgment to the Son. Listen to the way Paul preached this to the Athenians. God has fixed a day on which He will judge. It's going to be clear, He's referring to the Father. God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness, by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The acts of the Trinity are inseparable. You see it again? And here's how inseparable it is. We know God judges. And Jesus says the Father judges no one. But yet the Father has to judge. So how is it the Father judges no one? It's because he's committed all. All of that to the Son. The way the Father judges is by the man He's appointed. So these two works which only God does, Jesus does. Revealing that He as the Son is equal to the Father. And this is revealed so that we might marvel at the Son. And the particular way you're meant to marvel at Him is clear in verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Be as spiritual as you may. Meditate on God day and night. Be scrupulous about living a fine, moral, upright law to please God. Worship God. Be spiritual. Whatever you will. If it doesn't involve Jesus... It does not honor the Father. It's all in vain. It's empty. It means nothing. It's blasphemous. It's critical that we get the Trinity right because it means getting Jesus right, 
And if you don't get Jesus right, you go to hell. He's not pleased. If you want to honor God, you must honor Jesus. If you want life, if you want to avoid judgment, you must honor Jesus. And so, as we look to these, the final portion of our text, we come back to these two things Jesus does. He gives life and He executes judgment. It's the first life, verses 24 through 26. What kind of life is it that the Son gives? Is granted the Son also to have, uh, excuse me, uh, verse um, verse. 25, 24, (laughs) truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, believes him who sent me, has eternal life. Is this eternal life present or future? Well, it's future because it's present. He not will receive eternal life, he has eternal life. And the way you come into this eternal life, Jesus says, if you hear his words and you believe You not simply believe God, you believe in the Father who sent Him. You believe in God as the one who sends the Son. And then you hear the Son speaking as the one sent by the Father. And you believe, you have eternal life. And having this eternal life means you don't come into judgment. You're no longer a dead man waiting eternal death. You're no longer spiritually dead awaiting physical death. You're no longer under the curse awaiting condemnation. You've passed from death to life. And so understanding that now, we come to verse 25 and you wonder again, is this speaking now of eternal life in the future? Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Do you see the answer? It's right there again. You have eternal life and the hour is coming and is now here. It's a present reality. People are hearing How how do you come into this life? You hear Jesus. He says, the hour's now here. When they're hearing and they live. Ephesians 2 tells us that at one time we were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. And then he says that that this is all by grace and it's through faith. We believe. 1 Peter 1 tells us how we come to that faith. And how we're made alive together. You have been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. 1 Peter 1, 23 and 25. Through the preached gospel of Christ, the spiritually dead are made alive. They hear Jesus, by the word of the gospel, speaks, as it were, spiritually, just as he spoke to Lazarus, addressing his sheep by name. And he says his sheep will hear his voice and they will follow him. And the reason the Son can do this, he explains, verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. The Father has life in Himself. The theological term we use here is He has aseity, which means He has of Himselfness. He is pure being. He is absolute being. He is, in the most biblical of languages, He is the I Am. He is Yahweh. 
And so the son has life in himself just as the father has life in himself. And a phrase that can cause some hiccups is he's granted the son to have life in himself. How are we to understand that? That sounds like subordination. This granting is akin to the son's being eternally begotten. You can see it this way. If the son grants, if the father grants the son to have eternal life in himself, just like the father, as the father has life in himself, so the son. If the father grants this and the son did not have it before then, the son does not have life in himself as the father had life in himself. His life is dependent. In the same way that the son being begotten doesn't infer there was a time whenever the son was not. This doesn't infer that there was a time when the son didn't have life in himself. It's how their eternal relations work. This is the clearest way I know to make it plain. Is that as man begets man in his image. The man begotten in his image has a beginning and an end. Whenever God begets a son in his image, God has no beginning and end. So his son has no beginning and end. This is why we refer to him as the eternal begotten, the eternally begotten son. And so this granting of life to have life in himself is on that same plane. Man's begetting is temporal. God's begetting is eternal. The Son has always had life in Himself, but in relation to the Father eternally. So this is why John can open his first letter saying, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. What was being made manifest in Christ was eternal life, a saity in and of itselfness. John opened this gospel telling us in him was life and the life was the light of men. But how does Jesus' of himselfness translate to our receiving eternal life? Jesus came in our stead as a federal head of a new humanity, the second Adam. And so just as when he died, God looked upon that and reckoned us as dying. When he rose, God reckoned us as being in union with him. And whenever God wills it, we experience that resurrection life and are born again. And so Jesus says in John 10, 17 through 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. He has life of himself. And as he uses that aseity to raise himself from the grave, he brings us with him. He goes on. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. 
This charge I have received from my Father. And because He took His own life back up, we who are in union with Him rise by the power of the Spirit and the preaching of the crucified and resurrected Christ, hearing His voice, following Him. Jesus now moves on to talk about the judgment. You see the connection. Because He has judgment, those who hear His voice pass from death to life, and don't come into judgment. You really see the connection in these two resurrections. There is a resurrection of life, and there is a resurrection of judgment. Jesus is given all authority because He is the Son of Man. This draws from Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven in the clouds, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What you're reading about there is the son of man is a figure who's receiving a kingdom. This has reference not to Jesus' eternal dominion, by which he has already had all judgment, this refers to his dominion in redeeming a people as the God-man. And as he is God's king and as he judges, as he judges in light of his incarnation, death, and resurrection, we see the sheep and goat separated on the basis thereof. Jesus will speak. All will hear. Previously, some heard. This time, He speaks. All hear. Those who have done good to a resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. This can make you uncomfortable, perhaps, because you start to think that the life is merited because of the good just as the judgment is merited because of the evil. The sheep and the goats here are distinguished by good and evil works, but what differentiates them essentially are not the works. Sheep produce wool. Producing wool doesn't make you a sheep. Being a sheep makes you produce wool. So you've got woolly sheep and hairy goats. And it's not the hair and the wool that ultimately differentiate the sheep. It's their very nature. And the reason they have that nature is because they heard. And they're alive. Jesus gives life to whom He will. And those who he gives life to live. They're sheep. Right after Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you've been made made alive together with Christ. And by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Right after that he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus Four good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when Jesus separates the sheep and the goats on that last day, 
on the basis of wooly good and hairy evil. It's simply that they're being recognized by their fruits produced from their natures. And those natures are distinct because God has done a work of grace. And it's upon the basis of that work of grace wherein God the Father imputes to us the righteousness of Christ that on this day we experience no judgment. But don't confuse the markers, the ear tag of holiness that Jesus has put in the, His sheep as the grounds upon which they have a resurrection of life. So, again, this is what's put before every one of us. Someone is, you're, you're right now going to blaspheme or worship Christ. You're going to recognize Him as Lord and God or you're going to reject Him. Do you honor Him as the Father is to be honored. Do you marvel at Him? Do you believe as, on Him as the one that the Father sent? Do you hear His Word being brought to you by the Spirit? Believe. If you do, you have eternal life. Right now. You have it. You don't need to walk an aisle. You don't need to pray a prayer for me. If that's happening right now, God is brought you to life. We would just love to talk to you. I know your parents would, I would. Or a guest, if you're a guest or an adult, speak to one of the elders. And we'd just like to tell you what God has done. And tell you what it means to follow Him in the next steps. And see you grow in Christ. You have eternal life. The Athanasian Creed rightly assesses the magnitude of what's set before all of us right here. It closes in this way. This is the second half of the creed. Furthermore, it is necessary to the everlasting salvation that he also believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of the substance of his mother, born in the world. Perfect God and perfect man of reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, who, although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ, one, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of that manhood into God. One, altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead, he ascended into heaven. He sits on the right hand of the Father, God Almighty. From hence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead, at whose coming all men shall rise again with their bodies and shall give account of their own works 
And they that have done good shall go into life everlasting, and they have done evil into everlasting fire. This is the Catholic faith, which except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved. Well, God have mercy, and may we saints keep that faith and prove to be His sheep. And dear God, have mercy on all gathered here. It is our longing and prayer that you would not just subscribe to this faith intellectually, but you would bow to Jesus Christ as Lord with all your being, and you would have eternal life. Let's pray. Holy Father, may it be so. We plead your grace and mercy in Christ. May it be so. Lord, may we see your salvation. As we share the gospel, which you tell us is your, we know it, we've experienced, it is the power of God into salvation, we know this. Oh, we long to see it in others' lives. And so may we share it with boldness and humility. Father, we pray we would see that salvation in others. That Christ may be rightly esteemed as He is worthy of all honor, just as you are honored. And so in His name we plead this, and for His name and for your glory we ask all this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.